0: The athletic.
1: For so long, Williams' final win of the V10 era at the end of 2004 seemed like it would be the team's last ever victory in F1, yet somehow it chalked up one more 80 years later early in the crazy 2012 season, with the infamous Pastor Maldonado triumphing, in a battle with home hero Fernando Alonso to take a win that still raises eyebrows when you look back through the record books today. So how did Maldonado and Williams pull this off and what was everyone else playing at that weekend? To help me, Glenn Freeman, answer those questions and discuss everything else that was going on during a memorable spell in F1 history where seven different drivers won the opening seven races of 2012 are Ed Straw and Karun Chanduk. Karun, welcome to our once-a-series detour into the V8 era. When you think back to Spain 2012, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
2: Just watching Pastor take the lead back from Fernando Alonso around that uh, first round of pit stops. You know, he obviously lost it off the line, and we thought, okay, well, that's done and dusted. There's going to be an easy home win here for Fernando. But just that, that moment where... Williams pulled the trigger first pitted first and then he came out in the lead you know you suddenly thought this could actually happen
1: yeah it was it was incredible ed as always with the v8 era you were there in
0: spain so what stands out for you it has to be the unique way williams celebrated victory by uh, incinerating their garage it's good we can look back on that with a, a little bit of levity given quite how serious the potential consequences were but yeah it's not often that a team wins a grand prix and then has a incident of of that magnitude so that does lodge in the brain
1: yeah there's um there's footage of that on youtube as well um obviously the tv crews that were broadcasting at the time were in the paddock so you've seen the back end of it but there's fan footage in the from the grandstands overlooking the front of the garages and yeah this this was not a little fire that broke out in the corner, in the rear corner of a garage, as we'll come to later. But let's hear some suggestions put forward by our, our audience on Twitter. Lots of you went for the Williams fire, including Double Waved Yellow, Mark, Danny Helios, Moody, Andrew and Martin Sinek. There's a couple of mentions of Frank Williams's wife Ginny being at the race to see the team win. Those came from Eric Barnes and Rachel. Lots of people went for the collision between Michael Schumacher and Bruno Senna including Jack Byrne, Black Mask and Danny Hoare. TC chose Lewis Hamilton's disqualification from qualifying, as did Ian Handley. Simon M's says expecting Maldonado to bin it and being pleasantly surprised when he didn't. And Drew Gibson says seeing the result before watching it and thinking it must have been a chaotic wet race or something. Thanks for all the suggestions, as always. We had so many for this one. Sorry, couldn't get to all of them. Hopefully, some of you have already checked out our new Bring Back V10s merchandise range. So to get yourself a t-shirt, a hoodie, a mug, a water bottle, or a notepad, head to shop.the-race.com. And look out for more designs launching later in the year. And as we get closer to the end of the series, make sure you get your questions in. About the V10 era for our finale. As always, you can submit them to us using the hashtag bringbackv V10s on Twitter, or you can email bringbackv10s at the race.com. And if you'd like to get early access to ad free versions of new episodes and your own exclusive chance to ask questions after the series has finished, among other benefits, check out the Race Members Club. To join, head to the race.com forward slash members club. Or just head to our homepage and look for Join the Race at the top of the screen. For now, though, let's bring back V8s. There'd been a three-week gap since the previous race in Bahrain. Imagine that today. And the topic of conversation during that break was all about Pirelli's fragile tyres. This was the second season of Pirelli supplying F1. And after the Bahrain Grand Prix, Michael Schumacher had put the tyre supplier firmly in the spotlight as he criticised the approach of the tyres. Schumacher told the BBC, the main thing I feel unhappy about is that everyone has to drive well below a driver's and in particular the car's limits to maintain the tyres. I just question whether the tyres should play such a big importance and that you can drive at normal racing car speed and not cruise around like we have a safety car. And if it is 80% of the field that has this problem, then maybe the tyre supplier should think about that. In a follow up interview with CNN before the Spanish Grand Prix, Schumacher said a quite famous line where he said, we drive like on raw eggs and I don't want to stress the tyres at all. Pirelli didn't take this lying down with its then motorsport boss Paul Hembry saying the Italian firm was just delivering the sort of tyres it was told to produce by F1. He also said Schumacher's Mercedes boss and long-time ally Ross Braun was the leader for the teams and he told us that Canada 2010 was the model they wanted. Canada 2010 was of course the race where the Bridgestone tyres fell apart on the strange Montreal track surface and we got a chaotic and mixed up race as a result. But Karun, you had plenty of experience with the Pirelli rubber in 2011 in particular. Did you agree with Schumacher's suggestion that the tyres were too fragile?
2: I think it was a very confusing time. You know, we'd gone from the Bridgestone era and, you know, that, that Canada 2010 race you talk about, I, I was in it and I remember, you know, despite driving the, the HRT, which was probably two, three, couple of seconds off the pace of the midfield, there was a moment, I remember in... in Friday free practice must be an f p two where I had a fresh set of tires, and I caught and passed the the toro rosso on and I thought there's something weird going on here, and about four laps later, I realized what it was because the, the deck was was quite bad, but I think there was a you know it, provi- it created a, a fantastic race that weekend, but it also provided a slightly false sense of you know what. Um, Pirelli had to do because to achieve that at every track at every weekend is quite tricky to do. You know, the, the surface in Montreal that, that at that time was was particularly weird, if I have to be honest. So, you know, they, they produced these tyres which were extremely fragile. When they came out in 2011, everyone was just really confused because you had to drive. I mean, I, I haven't heard that... Uh, line from from Michael before, Uh, it's a great line actually, but um, you had to drive it so, so gently. You had to really underdrive on the front axle in particular, and and I actually think that hurt Michael. Uh, You know, if you think about his driving style and what made him so successful in in the Bridgestone Ferrari era, you know, it was about braking and pivoting on the front and, you know, sort of brake steering on the front axle and get the rear of the car dancing around. And the Pirellis didn't let him drive like that. You know, they just didn't offer the front bite and the front grip. You really had to do, to underdrive it. So I think it was a it was a really frustrating time. Uh, I think also 2011, 12, 13, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later on this podcast. But you know, 11, 12, 13, I think we were still at a phase where no people were still really unclear as to what the Pirelli tires were like. You know, there were a lot of question marks as to how to get them to work. There were lots of question marks as to, you know, how, how or why you could be competitive one weekend. Uh, you look at, I think, the, the weekend we're talking about here in Barcelona. We went from the Red Bulls being competitive to suddenly being one of the cars, not even in the top 10 in qualifying. And I think that's, that's something that we saw a lot of in particularly that first year and a half was real inconsistencies Um, And, you know, you had weekends where Jensen Button at Spa would absolutely obliterate the opposition, dominate by, I think he won the race by over 20 seconds. And the next time out, you just had no idea why the pace was not there. So I I, I really appreciate and understand Michael's frustration um, because I think he wasn't the only one at that stage.
1: The big question was how should F1 balance the drivers being able to push hard on their tyres against creating entertaining racing, which was the goal of the fragile tyres, really. Mark Webber said the drivers would all love to have quicker lap times and extremely consistent tyres like we did in the old days, but that wasn't the most exciting thing for the racing. And he said what we have at the moment is a pretty good show for the crowd. Webber's team boss at Red Bull, Christian Horner, sympathised with Pirelli for having 12 teams asking for 12 different things. And he agreed that from the fans' point of view, it has produced some very exciting races this year. McLaren's Jensen Button, who... Karim mentioned there, we'll come back to Jensen later. He had some real headaches achieving any consistency in 2012 with these tyres. Jensen said, I have never been in a situation where there are so many teams fighting for victories at different circuits. It's tough for us to try and understand, but it's great for the sport and great for the fans. Ed, you were covering all of these races, the, the different winners,
0: teams being quick one week and nowhere the next. What did you think? Was it good for F1? I think for a period it was given how predictable F1 had been the previous season it was a relatively comfortable championship victory for Vettel and Red Bull so to have wins being shared around for a time wasn't too bad first of all race had been won by Button, Alonso, Rosberg and Vettel that's not a bad group of drivers is it so it's not inconceivable for them to be uh, winning and of course there's always the fact that management had traditionally been part of Grand Prix racing, it wasn't always flat out. Obviously in the refueling era, particularly when Bridgestone produced these amazing tyres that really would perform for a long time over a stint, that that did change things a little bit. So I understand why the drivers were frustrated, but it was always clear that the teams would get on top of it. Of course, you have to remember the Pirelli tyres, the previous year, that was the first time they had been what you could call a bespoke control f1 tire in that whenever there'd been only one tire supplier before it was always just because they were the last ones there so their product was always developed as part of a tire war and that included bridgestone that michelin pulled out but bridgestone still had their tire war produced tires being used so very very different thing and it always means that you're going to have drivers and teams complaining about the the tires what was clear is that yes pirelli were asked to produce the high deck tires the problem is they didn't really have the control over it that they wanted. The tyres were very temperature sensitive. What you really want is tyres that, that degrade and have a, the right rate of wear as well while drivers are pushing. And then you have this linear drop-off, if you like, so the drivers feel like they they can push. It wasn't really possible with Pirelli. The quickest way to drive them was to manage them. So it's fair to say Pirelli wasn't doing exactly what it should have been even though it was doing what it was asked it's about the means of of doing it so a a mixed bag but I think that comment that Weber made and Button you quoted as well it is positive for those watching and okay if drivers and teams were getting a bit of a headache and not liking it for a bit maybe that's not such a a bad thing but we're still going through this obviously the whole thing about temperature sensitive tyres has only recently really been tackled by Pirelli so Yeah, it was a mixed bag, but it was good that it was different. And certainly this was a memorable season, partly because of the tyres.
1: Kimi Raikkonen, who was back in F1 in 2012 after two years away, had an interesting theory on the tyres. He felt there was nothing wrong with them. And the problem was that F1 cars were too heavy in race trim. Now there was no refuelling. Kimi said, I don't think there would be much problem with these tyres if we would race with 50 or 60 kilos of fuel when we start Previously, the pit stops were made usually after every 20 laps while we had less fuel. I think it would have been the same situation with Michelins and Bridgestones if we would have as much fuel as we have now. These tyres are good in qualifying, they have good grip, and all in all, they are good tyres. Karun, do you think refuelling plus Pirelli tyres might have been a decent combination?
2: I mean, it would help, obviously, you know, if you have a lighter car. And we're talking about it a lot at the moment, just how heavy the current 2022 generation of cars are, lighter cars make it easier for the tyres. That, that's just logical. But I was not a fan of refuelling. I think we, we just ended up with these races where they, they'd start driving on a procession, wait for the pit stops, the order might change, and then they go again. No, nobody actually overtook each other on track. So, no, I, I, I wasn't a fan. And the cost of flying the rigs around, you know, it's just, it's just seemed unnecessary, really.
1: Yeah, agreed. I was never a fan of of refueling. For that very reason, it was better to sit and wait for the pit stops than to try and race anybody. So as Ed mentioned earlier, we'd had four different winners from the first four races in 2012. And in the championship, that meant we had five drivers covered by 10 points. Sebastian Vettel led the way, trailed by Lewis Hamilton, Weber, Button and Fernando Alonso, who was hanging on in a pretty unimpressive Ferrari. Alonso's tenacity and a victory in mixed conditions in Malaysia were keeping him in the mix, but Ferrari was desperately trying to improve its car, throwing all sorts of updates at it during an in-season test at Mugello before the Spanish Grand Prix. Despite the car leaving a lot to be desired, Alonso felt that operationally, Ferrari was now maximising what it was capable of. Imagine that today. He told Italian newspaper, Gazzetta dello Sport, the mistakes we made in 2010 and 2011 with strategy, some things never change, pit stops and driver errors haven't happened anymore. As external factors go, we are now an almost perfect team. He described having such a bad car as like walking on a tightrope, you can never make mistakes. By walking on this tightrope, the team has reached a level of professionalism and confidence higher than you could imagine. The most important thing, the car, is still lacking, but the struggles of this year have made the team improve at double speed compared to a normal year. What do you make of that, Ed? Is that a fair assessment by Alonso? Was Ferrari actually delivering in all the other areas of being a race team at
0: this point in 2012 yeah it seems a strange thing to say given what's going on f1 right now in august 2022 but yeah operationally they were doing pretty well in that phase of the season they had responded well to the problems they had with the car they were still there but they patched it up as best they could it's perhaps the best way to do it i remember watching that car trackside at barcelona in testing and it was pretty horrible so yeah, making the best of it, the strategy was pretty good, reliability was fine. So the execution was strong. So I think Alonso's broadly correct to uh, to look at things that way. It wouldn't have been possible to fight for the championship without that. Obviously, they were helped by the fact everybody was baffled by the tyres, which allowed them to get better results than perhaps they should have done. But even then, they were still you know, picking up 7th and ninth places early in the season. So it wasn't exactly a brilliant start to the year. But yeah, they, they were doing all right.
1: Unsurprisingly, Ferrari president Luca di Montezemolo had a few things to say on the fortunes of his team. He told Italian TV that he hadn't expected the 2012 car to be so bad because he was given a different impression by the engineers over the winter based on the data they had about the new car. He also made a couple of revealing claims about Ferrari though, saying the team had become too isolated inside Maranello and he believed it needed to bring in some fresh ideas from outside. He also criticised the re- regulations, saying they wrongly made aerodynamics the fundamental element to win or lose, and he said that was the main reason Ferrari needed to recruit more aerodynamic competence and experience. Karim, what did you think of the rules package we had back in 2012? Was it too aerodependent? I
2: think you'd have to say that really since, what, the mid-2000s? you know formula 1 really became an aero formula uh, you know the engines started to to level off in some ways some had different characteristics but uh, you know you, kn- you didn't see the big differences, for example between BMW and and Renault that you saw in so 2002 3 so i don't think it was wildly different uh, i think he was uh, probably a little bit sore about the fact that you know they didn't have Rory Byrne anymore, and, and the only other person who was in the same league in that era was, uh, you know, working on the car um, from Keys. And you know the, the that Newey, Rob Marshall, uh, Peter Pro Romu era at, at Red Bull, they had got that blown diffuser working superbly, hadn't they? And they, they got the Renault um, Renault engine management system working well. So and the car just suited Vettel's driving style. But, um, you know, we had this odd season in in 2012 where Sebastian only won one out of the first 13 races. So, uh, and I think that coming back to Ed's earlier point, so much of that was down to the tyres. You know, um, I think it took until sort of Singapore for then Red Bull to to suddenly unlock the true speed and potential and understanding of the tyres and then he was just on a roll to the end of the race so yeah I think that was perhaps um, you know standard Ferrari having a little pop at
0: the rules. Ultimately he's arguing with the laws of physics there really isn't he because you can't put the aerodynamic genie back in the bottle it's such a dominance factor almost regardless of what rules unless you can somehow stop a car moving through the air, which is going to have that potential. It's very, very hard to do it. And we should remember that Ferrari had some serious shortcomings with its facilities. Obviously, they tried to sort out the wind tunnel, but that didn't really work. I think if memory serves this year, they did put the car in the Toyota wind tunnel in Cologne as well to try and diagnose some of their problems. So there were some weaknesses there as well on on the aero side, but that's just what Formula One has to be. And short of stipulating the bodywork has to be unchanged there's not a great deal that you can do when it comes to, to making it not aero dominated I don't think that's a rules thing I think that's just the way the world works
1: yeah and as, as Karun hinted in fairness uh, in any year of Bring Back V10's research where Ferrari aren't winning I can find stories that are often Luca di Montezemolo calling for rule changes and blaming the rules I'll give you a, a heads up of what's coming later in the series we're doing Imola 99 and even then he was complaining about the rules and obviously Ferrari were quite good at the start of 99 so uh, Ferrari never happy with the rules unless they're winning five championships in a row. But there was more Ferrari news going on around this time. And these were rumours, not for the first time, as it was interested in signing Mark Webber to partner Fernando Alonso. Red Bull boss Christian Horner dismissed the speculation, saying it seemed to happen every year, and joking that almost every driver in the pit lane has been linked alongside Fernando. However, there was more to this behind the scenes. After the following race of the year in Monaco, Webber went back to the Principality to meet with Ferrari team boss Stefano Domenicali on his manager Flavio Briatori's boat. This deal came incredibly close to happening, but in the end, Webber was put off by the terms of the contract. Webber said in his book, there was now a very real chance I would be joining the prancing horse. Flavio, Stefano and Fernando all wanted it to happen. Contracts were sent, but they were for one year plus an option for the second year instead of the two years we were pushing for. I wasn't interested in switching to another F1 team for 2013 when in the July of that season, they might tell me my services wouldn't be required for the following year. Ed, Webber at this point clearly hadn't made his mind up that 2013 would be his last year, so he wanted that security of the two-year deal without that on the table should he have been willing to back himself that he'd convinced Ferrari to trigger the option for that second year once he was ensconced in the
0: team alongside Fernando well I guess if he was really desperate to race for Ferrari then perhaps he should have done but equally I'd say why not back yourself to win the title in a team that's winning all the championships where you're already established which is what Red Bull was nice position to be introduced between those teams at this point but Ultimately, Red Bull was a better choice for Weber, wasn't it? Yeah, 2013 didn't go as he hoped. But, yeah, if you're going to back yourself to do something special, then actually staying where he was made a lot more sense. And I can see why you wouldn't want to put yourself in a situation where you've got to, in a couple of months, nail it, particularly when you're going up against Alonso, doubly so in a Ferrari that's not entirely convincing at that moment. So, yeah, I completely get the thought process for Weber.
1: What do you think, Karun? Is it a shame we didn't get to see Weber and Alonso as a partnership at Ferrari?
2: Uh, I, I don't know. You know, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, the reality is by that stage, I feel like Mark was was on the twilight of his career, wasn't he? he? He was winding down and he very much had his eye on the long term, on the big picture. You know, Mark, to be fair, I think Mark learned a lot from David Coulthard about, you know, how you need to look at life beyond the driving career and how you need to... St- you, you need to set yourselves up with the correct alignments and the correct partnerships for, for the next 25, 30 years of his life. And if he had gone to Ferrari, he would never have ended up at Porsche. You know, it's, it's I think that was unquestionably something in the back of his mind. He, he had already built up a good uh, relationship with Porsche, a strong relationship with Porsche, even during his Formula One days. So it was kind of a given that he would end up there uh, one day, in and it so happened that Porsche were coming back into LMP1 around that era. So, uh, I think um, that was very much on his mind. So, and and would Mark versus Alonso have been much more exciting than Felipe Massa versus Alonso? Maybe not. Um, so, no, I don't. I don't think we were really deprived of a, you know, of any massive inter-team battle there. Another driver
1: at the centre of driver market speculation was Lewis Hamilton, who was rumoured to be losing patience with McLaren after a sloppy start to the season, which wouldn't get any better in Spain, actually. Hamilton said in Spain that he couldn't take his eye off the ball to think about his future, but he'd asked his management to start thinking about things and plan what we would like to do in the future. Now, back in 2012, Hamilton was managed by Simon Fuller, the man perhaps best known for managing the Spice Girls. And Fuller had had plenty of conversations already by this stage with Mercedes CEO Nick Fry, although they'd not got down to serious talks at this point. Fry offered an interesting perspective on Fuller in the book he wrote about his time in F1 called Drive, Survive, Win. Fry said Formula One looked down on Simon and regarded him suspiciously. And that was true of both Bernie Eccleston and Ron Dennis. In Bernie's eyes, Simon was variously a threat or an irritant or both. Ron took a similar view, being used to driver managers who were brought up in car racing with that background. Someone from pop music was a real curveball. To a Formula One purist like Ron, dealing with Simon on the subject of Lewis's future was not what he would have expected or considered appropriate. Fry said he always found Fuller to be professional to deal with. And he said Fuller's approach was to go out and find the best options for Hamilton, lay them out for him and then let Lewis decide what he wanted to do. Ed, you were in the F1 paddock around this time. Do you think F1 maybe looked down on Fuller when he was Hamilton's manager?
0: Yeah, there was a bit of that. He was not seen as a proper F1 driver manager in the traditional sense. And there was still talk at this time in McLaren about all these supposed distractions to Lewis Hamilton of this side of things. But at the same time, why would the F1 establishment want this incomer coming in with their fancy ideas that apply to the rest of the world, not just the world that they control? So obviously fuller was trying to push the boundaries also it's quite hard to argue with the results because simon fuller in 19 entertainment it was under his watch that hamilton did that mercedes deal wasn't it that's worked out pretty well he's a global star bigger than he was back in this era with mclaren so they played a part in his rise to megastardom even though it didn't quite perhaps deliver what was once Hoped from that, so yeah, I mean, we've talked about how Ron Dennis had a very particular way of dealing with drivers and driver managers, and contracts, etc., in the past. So I think it's just one on another list that someone like Ron Dennis was always going to find it a little bit tricky to to deal with in the McLaren way of doing things. But overall, you'd have to say that even though Fuller was seen as a bit of a curiosity and someone who didn't quite belong with his organisation, actually did a pretty good job for Hamilton, even though their alliance only lasted, I think, four years in the end. I think the intention would have been for this to go on in pretty much perpetuity, as it has with some of those partnerships. but served a purpose and yeah, can't argue with results.
1: We won't get into how Hamilton ended up at Mercedes today, as that all came together much later in the season. But there was quite a lot going on with Mercedes In May 2012 as well. So let's focus on the team. They'd just taken their first win under Mercedes ownership uh, a month earlier in China, that Rosberg win we talked about. And Schumacher said this was a sign of the huge step the team had taken compared to the level it had been at in 2011, when it failed to take a single podium finish and ended a distant fourth in the Constructors' Championship. Schumacher added, starting the Silver Arrows new generation, for two years we had medium success and finally we managed a victory. I'm pretty sure we can have other good races this year, being on the podium and maybe being on the top of the podium. Fry was asked about the team's fortunes and he said he would be extremely disappointed if Mercedes didn't win another race in 2012. He also said something that looks incredibly prescient all these years later because he declared, my view is that we have the most talented technical team in F1 and we have put ourselves in a position where I believe we can be consistently successful going forward. Just a bit, Nick. Um, Karun, thinking back to 2012, when this version of Mercedes had just won its first race, was there any suggestion or inclination within F1 at just how good this team was about to become?
2: No, I I don't think so. I think, um, you know, there there was certainly the expectation that with Mercedes backing and with the people involved, they were going to rebuild the factory, reinvest, they were going to be there or thereabouts. They were going to be competitive. But, you know, let's be honest, the catalyst really was the V6 hybrid era, wasn't it? That that 2014 engine power unit that arrived was the catalyst that created this era of dominance for them. So, uh, and that... Again, you have to say, you know, I think speaking to some people in 2013 who had gone along and, and understood a little bit about the engines and understood, you know, the amount of investment they were making into it, which was really driven by Toto. You have to give him credit for that because he was the one who, you know, said to Mercedes, if you want to be successful, you need to stump up the cash, forget 2013, invest in the future and, and all credit to him, you know, for convincing them to do that. He... Um, but that, I think in 2013, I remember having a conversation actually with Frank Williams, who had been to visit, because don't forget, they were, they'd gone through a 0 hadn't they, where they'd gone Toyota, Cosworth, Renault engines in the V8s, and they were evaluating what to do when the, when the V6 hybrids were coming in. And I remember in 2013, Frank saying that what he had seen at Mercedes was so far ahead of what he had, seen at Viri from the Renault power side, that he was convinced that was 100% the way to go. And so it proved to be, you know, and in the end for Williams, it was a massive benefit, wasn't it, going to that power unit, which they're still with today. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think in 2012, we, anyone really expected this era of dominance to come. And, and listen, Lu- Lewis managed to, to time that move to perfection, didn't he?
1: He certainly did. Now, Mercedes felt... Undervalued politically in F1 in 2012, Bernie Eccleston had played some masterful divide-and-conquer tactics to break up the unity of the teams under the FOTA banner, Formula One Teams Association. The teams had agreed initially that they would all hold out until the end of 2012 to renegotiate their Concord Agreement contracts with F1. Uh, because that would back Bernie into a corner as all the contracts would be up at the same time. But Eccleston managed to get Red Bull to crack first by offering favourable terms, and that prompted Ferrari to jump ship and sign up as well. Other teams started getting themselves deals with various bonuses attached to them, including McLaren. Williams got a small one in the end as well. But Mercedes wasn't being offered such generous terms to sign up. Ross Braun and Nick Fry threatened to take legal action, claiming the deal's Bernie was cutting with various teams were in breach of uh, European Union competition rules. Braun said in his book that Bernie's response was, there's no more money left in the pot, you will have to take what you get, I don't care. This was around the time F1's owners, which back then was CVC, were hoping to float F1 on a Singapore stock exchange. So Fry told Autosport, if CVC wishes to float F1, I think they need this resolved fairly quickly, possibly more than we need it resolved. Discussions continue, but progress is not as strong as I would like. F1 would definitely be much the poorer if Mercedes was not a participant. Ultimately, Mercedes got the last laugh here, as later in the year it negotiated a deal with a bonus that could only be triggered if it won back-to-back championships and 24 races across two seasons. And as Karun mentioned, with the advent of the hybrid era, we all know how that turned out. But going back to 2012, Ed, before that deal was cut, were Mercedes being treated unfairly by Bernie
0: during all this? I think they certainly felt that they were, given that they'd been in Formula 1 certainly as an engine supplier going back to, well, officially 95. There was a Mercedes engine in the Sauber of the year before and an Ilmore Mercedes engine, really, the, the year before that. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, the phraseology that was used was that it was all about the history of the marks in in formula one really it wasn't about that it was actually about who had what bargaining position obviously the likes of ferrari had a a stronger bargaining position in the end so mercedes rightly felt that they were part of that but it it was a a very odd period with this kind of almost dismantling of of the concord as a single agreement and the creation of all these bilateral agreements divide and conquer as you as you say so i don't know whether it's about them being treated unfairly or not but in the end they actually got a reasonable deal didn't they they obviously backed themselves to, to deliver on it Eccleston's pretext would have been well you haven't won these championships well they said well okay we'll win these championships and then we get it I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't think it was going to go quite that well particularly with that race win target which is you know two championships is one thing that number of race wins over two years is pretty a pretty high bar to clear isn't it so yeah I mean in the ideal world you'd like all teams to get the same terms, really, wouldn't you? That's what should happen. But that's not really been Formula 1 for a long time, has it? So whether or not they were being treated unfairly, I guess Bernie got what he wanted for a few years. Mercedes ultimately won through with a deal that they wanted. Let's
1: get to the on-track action then. Hamilton claimed pole position in an updated McLaren that featured a higher nose, and Lewis described it as one of his best ever qualifying sessions. However, he'd been asked by his team to stop on track after his final Q3 lap, and hours later, Hamilton was excluded from qualifying. This was because McLaren had realised he'd been sent out without enough fuel on board to be able to provide the mandatory one-litre sample at the end of qualifying when he got back to the pits. To make sure the car still had enough fuel on board, they got Hamilton to stop before he made it back, but the rules required the car to get back to the pits under its own power to be compliant. McLaren's only hope of avoiding a penalty was to claim... Hamilton had stopped on track for reasons of force majeure, but the FIA stewards dismissed this because the car was under due to a mistake by a team member. An FIA statement said, as the amount of fuel put into the car is under the complete control of the competitor, the stewards cannot accept this as a case of force majeure. It was understood that the mistake came about because when the car was filled up for its final run, the fuel system was originally set to drain rather than fill, and then not enough was put back in before the car... Left the garage. Ed, we mentioned earlier that Hamilton was having his doubts about McLaren at this point in 2012. Was this the kind of sloppy error that ultimately forced him to look away from McLaren
0: for his future? Yeah it was one of a number of errors they had that year both in terms of just operational whether it's pit stops getting the fuel right in qualifying whatever but also reliability and this is a team that had been stuck at this almost but not quite level for a few years at this point very much with Red Bull dominating. McLaren would win some races each year but they'd always find ways not to do it the 2012 car was quick enough to win the championship that year there's no question about that obviously the the crowning glory, if that's the right phrase of this, was the gearbox failure while leading at Singapore later in the season. That was, ultimately, it was a quality control problem. It was a little bit of the mould that was left embedded in the casing, I understand, that eventually shook free and then it was loose. and Then it caused the failure. So that's a fairly simple thing that really shouldn't happen. That kind of gave Hamilton that final little impetus for actually yeah, moving on is a good idea. So, yeah, It's all part of the bigger picture of McLaren, a team that was creaking and not really keeping up with the standards that were being set by the likes of Red Bull.
1: Hamilton called the exclusion extremely disappointing, while McLaren team boss Martin Whitmarsh said it was his decision to stop the car on track to make sure that it at least complied with the requirement to have one litre of fuel left. Whitmarsh accepted it was his mistake for McLaren to play it this way and he said they could have called Hamilton in either at the end of his outlap or aborted his final attempt. Uh, Whitmarsh said, with hindsight, I was wrong, but I don't think I or very many people anticipated that as a consequence, we would be starting from the back of the grid. He could have just come in at the end of the outlap, but frankly, I did not expect the penalty that he received. McLaren indicated it thought Hamilton might just get thrown out of Q3 and therefore get to start 10th, but the regulations referred to exclusion from the whole session rather than the individual qualifying segments.
2: So Karun, would you
1: agree with Whitmarsh that the penalty of being thrown out of qualifying entirely was a bit harsh?
2: Listen rules are rules. <laughs> uh so uh, yeah I'm sure he would have liked to have only been you know disqualified from Q3 and start the race from P10 but it's it's been the rule for such a long time hasn't it if you don't have enough fuel poff you're done. So uh not sure he had much of an argument there.
0: It happens to Vettel later in the season as well, doesn't it? It's just standard, no matter what the reason is, you're done.
2: And it's not just Formula One. It's a it's a rule you've got across many, many, frankly, I think most motorsport categories. So it's, it's yeah, I mean, look, no, he was trying to perhaps make themselves feel a bit better, uh, but ultimately they made an error. So there you go.
1: Hamilton's exclusion bumps the Maldonado's Williams up to the front of the grid, Maldonado was consistently quick in qualifying, setting the fifth fastest time in Q1 and going fastest in Q2 before being second behind Hamilton in Q3. And news of Hamilton's exclusion started to ripple through the paddock while Williams was holding a big celebration for Frank Williams' birthday, which had been the previous month. Frank's son, Jonathan Williams, is a great friend of the show here and a regular guest on Bring Back V10s. So for the first time in this episode, let's hear a little bit about that celebration and what it was like hearing the news that Maldonado was set to be bumped up to pole position.
3: We were joined by an off by a lot of the paddock and Bernie came and uh, I think Damon sort of became the uh, the MC was sort of the one doing uh, because the microphone system failed and my dad's voice, as we know, was quite sort of quiet. So the motorhome was packed, so not many people could actually hear. So, of course, Damon decided to, it was almost like when you've got a translator, Damon, would, my father would say something, and then Damon would sort of like, who was standing at his side, thought, well, they can't hear him. So Damon, bless him, took it upon himself and just was like shouting across the room. Frank just said, and of course, and it actually, they choreographed it just very natural, the way that my dad knows what was going on. So he would like say a short bit and then look up at Damon, and Damon would go, and now Frank has just said, and I think, I mean, we knew that Lewis was under investigation after qualifying. So it wasn't a total surprise, but I think the news actually came through on the, uh, uh, so it coincided with that party. The word began working around the party that sort of the bulletin was there because one person who was notable by his absence, given that nearly, all of the paddock turned up was, of course, Sam Michael, somebody who who Williams, you'd have to say, was an important part of his career, so would want to be there. But I think he was desperately trying to... He was, he was fighting the losing fight in the FIA office at the same time as the party was going on to try and keep his car uh, on pole position.
1: Maldonado said his speed was a result of Williams working hard to understand the Pirelli tyres and upgrades the team, Brought to Spain, while Williams chief operations engineer Mark Gillen praised Maldonado's ability to produce a quick lap in each segment to save tyres, so he had a fresh set for Q3 to go for pole. Of the other likely front runners, at Red Bull, Sebastian Vettel had to burn through an extra set of tyres to get through Q2, so he didn't run in Q3, while teammate Mark Webber tried to save a set of tires by not running again in Q2, and he got bumped out, so ended up 12th on the grid. Well, well, twelfth in qualifying. Jensen Button also missed the Q3 cut in the second McLaren, uh while at Mercedes Nico Rosberg was only 7th before Hamilton's exclusion and Michael Schumacher chose not to run again to save tires for the race. So, Ed, big question here, how can we explain Maldonado being on the front row initially? Did did Williams take a big step
0: forward or did all the established front runners underperform? Yeah, there's a number of factors here. We do have to remember the Williams FW34 was, was a very good car, criminally underexploited by the drivers, I'd have to say. Maldonado had flashes of speed, but obviously Spain exemplified that, but he could be a bit all over the place. Bruno Senna was a good driver, but never really managed to get the best out of the car in qualifying. So you've got a car that's probably quicker than perhaps a quick glance at the results suggest. So that's part one of it. Uh, Maldonado, of course, is could be a very quick driver so you've got a driver who can put together a good lap and it was really all about the tires yes williams had done some work with upgrades at the magello test but tires were the key thing we've talked about the problems with managing them and drivers not being able to push etc but as part of this push to get the dead characteristics they want they had pirelli had changed the tires that year they're a bit more square shouldered tires for whatever better phrase that changed the way the contact patch worked so you had this problem whereby the rear tires had a bigger contact patch and were a bit more prone to overheating because you were just there's just more contact patch to put put that energy in through. And then the front tires, it was a similar thing, but it had the opposite effect almost, because you're slightly widening the contact patch, bigger, bigger footprints, and that limited energy you're putting into the front tires is being spread a bit more thinly, as it were. So it's kind of this perfect storm for particularly qualifying where you'd end up overheating your rears and having your fronts low temperature and that'd be terrible particularly for Spain you know if you've got understeer through that long turn three and then you haven't got the traction at the rear coming out the chicane at the end of the lap it's just saps lap time so Williams got on top of this and they were probably the first team to really get it with these uh with these tires in that year and a big part of that was using the brakes the front brakes to heat up the tire through the rim that gave them a big help and other teams cottoned onto this so you have a little bit of everything in that you've got a quick car, quick driver, they've mastered the tyres, the circuit is ideal for making the tyres work in this way, being a big benefit. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories about that weekend. (laughs) I do remember one relatively senior Williams engineer joking a few years later about special Barcelona 2012 tyres, but it was more that their lottery numbers came up in the fact that they were in a good car and had understood how to make those tyres work it was just as simple as that people talk about the tyres not meant to be that dominant but it's the bit that connects the car to the track so it's absolutely unavoidable and in a Formula One where you're pushing everything to the limit exploiting everything the tyres are going to be a critical part of that doubly so in this aero era where suspension geometries were compromised for aero gains. so you were even limiting yourself in terms of the tools you had with the geometry of the suspension to have the kind of contact patch and control that you wanted so it's just the nature of the beast and if you look at Maldonado's lap it it wasn't an inch perfect lap but it was a committed lap a little bit reactive that was what Maldonado was but it just all added up to being genuinely genuinely quick it was just a shame that Bruno Senna because he did struggle in qualifying which I've always sort of thought Was maybe down to lacking a proper karting career and all that foundation of getting the best out of tyres that drivers build up in that that he couldn't join him But yeah, Maldonado and the Williams, quick car that that, uh, that weekend.
2: Well, I remember speaking to Bruno on various occasions that season, he said he just couldn't get the feeling he wanted on the front tyre with the Pirelli's. Coming back to that earlier point about Michael, you know. Bruno was often quicker than Pastor in the races. Um, you know, I think back to races like Malaysia, where he overtook Pastor in the race, having qualified, you know, quite a few places behind him. But he just could not get the feel he wanted on the front tire. And, and Pastor, he had some good qualities that year, didn't he? Because obviously we're talking about Spain, but I remember Singapore, he was in the top three. Abu Dhabi, I think he was third up on the grid there. Uh, I've written it down actually. There was another one somewhere earlier this year I think Canada perhaps he was competitive as well so you know he he uh, Valencia was the one wasn't it he was third in the grid sorry not Canada but yeah it was a it was a fast car to Ed's point but I think it was one of those seasons where you just had to get the tires in the right window and the ones that seemed to do it really well on a Sunday were the were the you know the black cars the Enstone team Enstone cars both Kimmy and Uh, and Grosjean, they were extremely fast in the races, but they couldn't light it up on on Saturdays.
1: And talking of someone else who couldn't light it up at this stage, let's get back to Jensen Button then. As we mentioned, he was 11th in Q2, so just ahead of Weber. And he said, to be out in Q2, not by a mistake, but by not being quick enough is really surprising. I didn't get anywhere near the balance I had yesterday in practice. Things wouldn't get much better for Jensen in the race as he could only move up to 9th and he couldn't understand why he was struggling so much to get on terms with these fragile tyres. He said after the race, I'm normally good at looking after the tyres and having good consistency, but I can't do that at the moment, and I don't know why. I'm really struggling. It's not an overnight fix. We need to work out why I can't work with these tyres. As soon as I am in traffic, I can't keep any heat in them. I turn the steering wheel like everyone else does, but it doesn't seem like that at the moment. Jensen said, in his book, that it wasn't until McLaren put a big upgrade on the car mid-season that things clicked for him again with these tyres. Corinne, you know Jensen well these days, a colleague of yours on, on TV. Why do you think he was so sensitive to the tyres at this phase in early 2012, where he had all these struggles? Was it something about his driving style that made him more vulnerable to it, perhaps, than others?
2: I don't think it was specific to this era, was it? You know, Jensen was always a driver who really really counted a lot on having the right grip and the right feel and the right balance. He couldn't necessarily drive around problems in a way that Lewis Hamilton could. You think of his championship winning year, for example, in uh, 2009 and the British Grand Prix when the tyre temperatures dropped off a bit. Even in the race, we would see him weaving around, trying to build up temperature in the front tyres as, as he went down Hanger Straight. So. You know, he was a driver who really relied on, on the car and the tyres being in the right window to give him the confidence. And if they were, he had an incredible ability to deliver performance. Um, but if they were outside of that, then he suffered a bit more perhaps than someone like Lewis did.
1: Let's get into the race then because joining Maldonado on the front row was home hero Alonso in that troublesome Ferrari and this wasn't a case of the Ferrari suddenly being a great car because Felipe Massa was 16th on the grid in the other one Alonso took the lead at the start and held Maldonado off through the first round of pit stops but Maldonado jumped him by pitting first at the second stops helped slightly by Alonso getting held up when lapping Charles picks uh, Marussia Maldonado then came in four laps before Alonso for the third pit stops and got held up slightly by the late-stopping Raikkonen. That allowed Alonso to close right up for the final stint, but Maldonado was able to withstand intense pressure that followed this moment. And in the closing laps, Alonso's challenge faded slightly to give the Williams some breathing space. So unbelievably, all those years after Juan Pablo Montoya's final Williams win in 2004 the team was on the top step of the podium again. Maldonado said afterwards that he'd not been able to push that hard as the focus throughout the race was on managing the tyres. So when Alonso closed right up to him in the final stint, he was trying to make sure he kept the tyres alive to the end. And the team said they'd not thought about winning the race beforehand. Uh, Maldonado had been told the target was to bring home solid points and not go chasing the victory. Ed, we know that Pastor Maldonado, a much maligned F1 figure overall, we won't get into the debate about how valid that is across the span of his career, but on this day,
0: how good was this performance from him? Yeah, it was seriously good. Really, really good. Right from the start, actually, squeezing Alonso at the start, didn't over-squeeze him, didn't cause a collision fought as much as he could in the first corner, didn't have a little collision, which you might expect the normal thing could very easily have had his front wing damaged, had the patience to know the race would come to him, executed that undercut, responded to the pressure and having to manage his tyres. There were countless ways Maldonado could have won, could have lost this race, but he didn't take any of them. This was a day on which like everything came together and he had the, the right mental approach to produce this kind of victory it's it's no exaggeration to say this was the exemplary execution of a race win it was it sounds stupid to say it because it's Maldonado but it had the the Schumacher quality to it in that it was just doing everything you need to do at every point to make it happen regardless of the pressure and when you're doing this against Alonso of all people relentless yeah the Williams was the stronger car that day but this is Alonso versus Maldonado. So it was going to be a a, a tricky one. So honestly, I think it was a really good performance. The funny thing is, it never completely surprised me that Maldonado won a Grand Prix. But... The way he won it and the track he won it at was not the one I'd have picked. I'd have gone for a a Monaco-type one for him because he was mega around there and he he could hustle a car and he was quick. But this was beautifully executed by Maldonado and very much merited on his day of days. Just a shame that the factors that had to align for him to get this kind of result were so extreme that it was never going to happen again, was it?
1: This win prompted plenty of talk about Maldonado's reputation, which, as I mentioned, to this day is that really of an accident-prone pay driver, whether that's justified or not. Frank Williams said afterwards that he wouldn't deny money was part of the reason Maldonado was in the team, but he added, if we thought he was a wanker, he wouldn't have got into the team, no matter how much money he had. And Frank added, he fully deserves to be in the team, with or without the dosh. We've got a real racing driver." I'm just astonished by the way he controlled himself and didn't make a mistake at all. Williams board member Toto Wolff, whatever happened to him, was in a feisty mood on this topic as well. He told Autosport post-race that it was being diplomatic to suggest Maldonado had silenced his critics as Toto felt he had shut them up. Wolff added, Pasta has been very successful in attracting partners and many others have been too. So let's forget about this phrase pay driver, as we have to get used to this situation in the future, the economic environment in racing has changed. Karin, you raced against Maldonado in GP two. Do you think his reputation as a wayward pay driver was unfair?
2: It was a little bit unfair, but at the end of the day, he did come with a load of funding from PDVSA, um, and you know, he—I mean—he crashed into me twice in GP two Um and I, I remember, you know, we, we, he crashed into me, start of Monaco 2008 and then 2009, we were on the front row together. And I remember walking over to him on the grid and I said, look, let's just get through the first corner first and let's not have a shunt. Uh, and then sort of whatever happens, happens. I mean, I, I was always happy to give up, give up uh, uh, fighting for the, for the lead in the first corner just to get round. And he, he was that sort of character. Um, I think my favorite one, sorry to digress a little bit, but my favorite one was the first GP2 round of 2008. He was teammates with a driver called Andreas Zuber. Um, and they, they managed to hit each other as teammates. They managed to hit each other four times within one lap. And then they both came in to retire at the end of the lap. But yeah, listen, that was Pastor. You know, he, when he put the helmet on, the red mist would come down. He was just sort of enigmatic character and what really confused you was when you saw him outside, and I got on personally very well with Pastor, you know, we would often have dinner together and I got to know, you know, his wife Gabby and his, his dad and things like that, and we would often have dinner and he was the most placid, calm character that you could imagine. You just, the, the contradiction between what was going on in the car and outside was just incredible.
0: I always remember going through a sequence, I think it probably was during that season of... Speaking to Maldonado after the race, running through an accident that he thought wasn't really his fault. And you could have a very polite, civilised conversation with him. He was very friendly about it when you'd sort of be saying, yeah, but it did look like you did this and that's what caused it. He was very... uh, So I absolutely back up what Karun said at the car. But the strange thing with Maldonado, I think he only scored points 14 times in F1. Okay, he had some weak cars at times. The previous year with Williams wasn't great. The year after wasn't great. But he only scored five points, uh, five points finishes in that season in a strong car, And of course, the next uh, race after Spain was Monaco, wasn't it? So we're all thinking, well, Williams won in Spain, Maldonado at Monaco in a good car. What can he do? Well, what did he do? He had a completely pointless tussle with Sergio Perez in a practice session and got himself a grid penalty straight away. And that, in a microcosm, is Pastor Maldonado just all over the place. I think on track, particularly when around other cars in the wheel-to-wheel stuff, the red mist was very, very much there. But underneath all of that... Genuine, genuine, genuine ability that was usually unchanneled, but I think it's important to stress that Spain really, really, really did work. He really did keep it all under control and deliver. And when I was watching that race, I was thinking there's going to come a point where just something happens. There'll be a bit of brain fade. He'll make a mistake. But he was rock solid. Really well deserved.
1: Williams's roller coaster ride over this weekend wasn't quite over even after the checkered flag. It was around 90 minutes. After the finish and not long after the team's celebration pictures were taken, a fire broke out in the Williams garage. And this, as I mentioned at the beginning, was a big fire. Smoke was billowing out of the front and the rear of the garage. And it took the quick reactions and the help of personnel from several teams to help get this under control. Lots of team members were treated for minor injuries or smoke inhalation. and One person suffered burns. Let's hear from Jonathan Williams again here as he was in the garage when this fire broke out, as was Frank Williams. I, I remember
3: just being with him in the garage uh, after the race and he began begun orchestrating things. And I think he said to Dickie Stanford, team manager at the time, he said, can you get anyone that's not team out of the garage. I want to talk to the mechanics and and, and I, 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 want, sorry, I, want, I want to talk to the race team. And he was, I, I he was maybe a minute into it if not that. And all of a sudden there was just this, there was this kind of like rushing raw type sound. And then I just saw sort of this kind of like, Sort of like sort of horizontally traveling, sort of movement of, of, of fire just coming over the top of the garage wallboards behind him. So, about five, six, well, four or five feet maybe above his head. And I instinctively, as I was leaping up, I reached forward thinking, so I need to basically grab the left hand handle of his wheelchair and get around the back bloody quickly and start pushing. And as I was leaning forward to try and get my hand on that wheelchair, all of a sudden he exits stage left in front of me. Somebody has had it, which turned out to be Mark Gillam. Somebody had had exactly the same thought as me and beaten me to it. So Mark has beat. And then Joe, one of our mechanics, I think Mark was pushing. And of course, Joe had the brilliant sort of uh, peace of mind to actually know that my father's quite sort of unstable in, at speed in the wheelchair and this was going to be as quick as probably as he'd ever moved so i think joe put his hands on his shoulders and joe's running alongside as mark's pushing but i, that just, I but I, I do kind of remember it just coming over uh, over the i could just see it above my father's head about four or five feet i could just see it coming if you heard it it's like rushing roar type sound and then you and then it just sort of appeared as like a wall of fire one of the most touching things was, was that, uh, was that during the sort of like two or three minute chaos of that fire, where instinctively my father was literally pushed as far away from it as possible. And I think when Christian Horner realized what was going on, he very, very and my mother had somehow ended up with my father and myself and the rest of us were all separated. I do, I, Christian Horner basically got the, basically straight into the energy station, as soon as he understood what was going on to my understanding and made sure that that they were very well looked after were they okay you know did it and so always very very grateful to christian and red bull for that part of that of that
1: ed you had to report on this fire afterwards once it was under control what did you find out about it and
0: what did you witness in the paddock at the time where were you i was actually in the williams motorhome at the time i was waiting to speak to mark gillen to find out how this miraculous win had happened and they had the the tv screen showing the the sky coverage or whatever so you could see what was going on and you see the the flash of fire and that's not completely unusual you know once in a while that sort of thing happens but normally it's very quickly under control but it became very very clear there was a serious battle going on with with that fire and obviously, all the other teams were pouring in to, to help it, help uh, get it under control. The uh, the circuit fire fighters weren't especially useful; they were quite slow in arriving, if memory serves, and that wasn't particularly helping it. It was very much the the teams, you know, Caterham nearby. I think Toro Ross they were in the same vicinity uh, doing that, and obviously they were running around moving their fuel barrels out of the way and that kind of thing to try and stop it spreading. I must admit, I do remember you're watching it with concern and I, I distinctly remember thinking almost at the point where I might need to just to go and get my bag and laptop and passport and everything out of the media centre because if it got out of control it could have taken out the whole pit building it's not an exaggeration to to say that so very very serious as I understand it the they did a report into it the FIA looked into it it was put down to to a spark igniting some fuel vapour which then basically blew the fuel store as I understand it it was wild bruno senna's car was being drained of fuel because he'd retired so his car was in the garage maldonado's actually wasn't because it was in part firm but because senna had retired relatively early in the race he was back there uh, in, in the garage and that's one of those well, there's, there's that conspiracy theory about oh they were burning they were burning it to hide the evidence which is complete nonsense we've heard the description of how massively dangerous the whole thing was so there was no element of it being deliberate I think what happened is there were a number of safety procedures that they should have had for this kind of fuel activity that weren't necessarily entirely followed, shall we say. So they tightened up all on that to stop it happening again. So it was a bit of human error and you know, you're moving fuel and fuel vapour in particular, it does only take a spark to ignite that and have huge, huge, huge consequences. So yeah, that they not only did Williams instigate some procedures the FIA got involved and said to teams right this is what you need to do to make absolutely sure you you do it right so very very serious incidents looked for a minute like it might get completely out of control but thanks to the the efforts and the quick thinking of uh, of just team personnel it was just a footnote to this race rather than something far 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 more horrendous
1: yeah, thank goodness for that. And uh, fortunate, as you heard there in Jonathan's story, uh, Ed was waiting for Mark Gillen, but Mark Gillen was actually in the garage at the time helping get Frank out of the uh, of the garage. That was a much better use of his time than speaking to
0: you. To his credit, uh, he gave me a call the next morning. I think I was at Girona Airport waiting to fly back. And so after he sorted all out, he gave me a call to talk me through the miracle of the weekend.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. A touch of class there as well. Uh, remembering the little people like ed straw maldonado's win denied alonso a victory on home soil but alonso was happy and surprised to come home second which left him tied on points with Vettel at the top of the championship ferrari weren't getting carried away though alonso said we still don't know where we are and he said he felt ferrari had overperformed and other teams had underperformed in spain He added, what we can say is that we had the most difficult start to the championship with a car that was not competitive at all. And after one quarter of the championship, we are leading with Vettel. So we have to be proud of our position. Maybe not so proud of the competitive package we have, but we are working on that. Team boss Stefano Domenicali backed Alonso up, saying Ferrari still needed to take a massive step with its car. He said there were clear signs of progress from all the work going on at the factory, but we know it's not enough. So Karun, let's examine Ferrari's result here. Was second place a good result for Alonso in the circumstances or does this have to go down as a missed opportunity given all the other front runners were out of the picture and Alonso was beaten by a Williams?
2: I think you have to put it down as a good result because I do genuinely think it was one of those days where the mercurial Pastor Maldonado you know, did a great job and you'd have to say that I kind of agree with that, you know, if Alonso was in that Williams in 2012, you really wonder if that car could have been a title contender because, uh, you know, someone of Alonso's experience and um, just, you know, everything else that he brings to the package outside of the car would have probably helped to give the team some direction and, and development, you know, instead of two relatively inexperienced Formula One drivers uh, in Bruno and, and Pasto. So um, I think it was it, it was a good baseline there. You know, I look back often at that 2012 season that Fernando put together and still maintain it's one of the best seasons that a driver has delivered. You know, in terms of consistently outperforming their car instead of consistently dragging out results where, you know, it didn't deserve to be often, Fernando's season was was stellar. Uh, You know, the fact that he only won the championship, sorry, lost the championship by three points at the end is, uh, you know, is an incredible reflection on, on just how good he
0: was. And he'd have won the championship if it wasn't for a couple of 1st incidents, Zuka and Spar, if memory serves. well. Spar, certainly, we all remember with the Grosjean-triggered incident. But, yeah, he absolutely did everything he could to win that championship in a car that was, you know, it wasn't the worst car in the field. It wasn't a 2010 HRT. But, yeah, it, it, was, it was certainly not the best.
1: Yeah, we had uh, a lot of responses actually to the to the opening question. where people saying, uh, people saying this was the race that if Alonso could have beaten Maldonado, he obviously would have won the championship. But as you say, there Ed, there were some more obvious places he uh, lost points or had them taken away from him. But Alonso only just held on to finish second here, with a charging Kimi Räikkönen finishing less than a second behind him in third. Räikkönen made his third and final stop later than the leaders and came out of the pits. 22 seconds behind Alonso, with 18 laps to go, and his Lotus teammate Roman Grosjean was flying along behind him at a similar rate in fourth, just a bit further back. Raikkonen was frustrated with this race because he felt Lotus could have won if they'd got the car and the tyres working as well in the first three stints as they did in the final stint. Kimi said, if we had done everything right from the first part of the race, we could have put put ourselves in first place. We needed 10 more laps and we could have fought for the win. Ed, Raikkonen had run Vettel close for victory in Bahrain as well. Karun mentioned that this was a car that was great in race trim, didn't necessarily get the job done in qualifying. Were these missed opportunities for Lotus in early 2012?
0: Yeah, I think they were. I think Bahrain in particular stands out as a missed opportunity. Spain was as well, although he talks about getting everything right. They made a mistake earlier in the race when they went on to they stayed with softs for the second stint, expecting them to work better. That did cost them a little bit of time with both drivers because the hards would have been the better tyre to go. The top two went soft and then hards for the rest of the, the three-stop race. It, it, was, it was a good car, that Lotus. It did work the tyres nicely, really good on, on race stints. I think probably Raikkonen wasn't back at here. Well, I don't think Raikkonen was at his absolute F1 best, and he was still feeling his way in a little bit in the early season, still shaking that rust off. Maybe a, a Raikkonen that was less ring rusty would have picked up one of those wins at least earlier on. But there probably should have been more than one win that year for, for Raikkonen in, in that car. It's interesting though, I, I did an interview with Raikkonen at the end of 2021, kind of a career retro, and I, I put it to him that, well, I think you're at your best in the, the the great McLaren years. Those those were when you were relatively speaking at your best. Slightly unusual for it to be early in the career, and a lot of what followed after wasn't so good. But Raikkonen did. He sort of half agreed, but then he said, "Well, Lotus was really good as well." So he felt he was operating at a, a high level, and perhaps it was exaggerated by what you referenced there with the the offset between single lap and and race performance. But yeah, I, I think Raikkonen should have won. At least one more race. Bahrain in particular was, I think, one they, they really should have won. And the joke at this time was that was that they always won the race five to ten laps after it had finished.
1: <laughs> we'll stick with the subject of Raikkonen. There's another thing that Jonathan Williams gave us some insight on when we uh, when he and I spoke recently was how close Raikkonen came to driving for Williams in 2012. The possibility of this happening was reported at the time and both Toto Wolf and Raikkonen have spoken about it since. So first let's hear Jonathan's memories of how close it came to happening and perhaps why it didn't.
3: I don't want to be disrespectful to, to Bruno Senna, but I think the way, the way that I understand it was that it was kind of done and dusted that, that, that Raikkonen's come out of retirement would be with Williams for 2012. And I think at the last moment, it was decided by, I think, driven by Adam Parr, but decided by, obviously, the hierarchy at Williams that probably we didn't sort of, for for a driver of Raikkonen's calibre and stature, given the quite bruising and uncompetitive 2011 we'd had, we didn't, uh, we weren't rather going to be in a position to offer him Uh, a a good car. But obviously what we were doing behind the scenes in 2011 was completely ripping down the technical hierarchy and starting again. And in came Mike Coughlin, Mark Gillan and Jason Somerville, which was just one of the biggest transformations I've personally witnessed, you know, most because we were in such a dire way technically before they arrived that it was just the breath of fresh air you know we we were really struggling i think technically sort of before their arrival there 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 are some of us that sort of wonder if kimi raikkonen had been armed with a renault powered fw34 through 2012 maybe there might have been because we saw how how just how phenomenal raikkonen was in that in that he'd lost nothing in those two years two years out and for sure the Lotus car was a, was over the balance of the season a, a much better car than than our car was, but still, to, in, in the latter part of 2011, a lot of the focus, I believe, or well, quite a bit of the focus, was on Räikkönen. And an ex-Williams colleague, who's still a very dear friend, called me at that time, and because he and Kimmy are very good friends, and uh, he said, uh, he said, "You're getting Kimmy. and I said okay, just out of interest, where did you go? I you knew what was going on. He said, well, Kimmy tells me that's where he thinks he's driving next year. So, yes, yeah, so okay. So it looks as if both parties are kind of like just about there. They need to be there. And and, and I think at the last minute, Williams got cold feet, that sort of... Uh, and I'm sure there were there were some other considerations too, But uh, but yeah, we kind of got cold feet, I think, on that one.
1: Okay, Ed, so... Karun mentioned earlier the idea of Alonso being in that Williams. What about if it was Räikkönen? Do you think overall the team would have had a better season than it did with Maldonado and Senna?
0: Yeah, I've no doubt it would have had a better season. They managed 76 points that season, Williams, which is a bit of a travesty for the, the quality of... 25 uh, of them from this race. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So... I think Raikkonen would at the very, very least have been Mr. Consistent and he'd have picked up a lot more thirds, fourths, fifths, sixths than the the pair they, they did have would have done. I must admit, I was very sceptical about the idea of Raikkonen at Williams at the time. I remember writing a, a little editorial piece in Sport that, that questioned about you know, things like his motivation, which was partly drawn from the fact he'd recently decided not to do Rally Australia as part of his WRC campaign, basically because he didn't really fancy going all that way, which... He was on the record as saying, which I remember mentioning in that column. I was told at the time he was shown that column while talking to Williams and kind of dismissed it, probably with the contempt it deserved. But obviously, it was on their radar. Don't know if that's true, but I was told that was the the case. But I've got no doubt Reikonen would have done a, a better job. So actually, I think Reikonen to Williams for 2012 would have been a, a better deal for both team and and driver than I thought it was when it was being mooted. But as it was, Lotus benefited from it.
1: Yeah. So as usual, you were wrong. For our final topic, then, let's revisit an incident that had ramifications for the next race in Monaco. On lap 13 at Barcelona, Michael Schumacher ran into the back of Bruno Senna's Williams, putting them both out of the race. Unsurprisingly, the drivers disagreed over who was at fault. Schumacher watched the footage back before speaking to the media about it and he accused Senna of moving to the right to defend his position into the first corner, then moving back to the left in the breaking zone. Schumacher said he tried to move across to the inside to avoid the Williams, but it was too late and he slammed into the back of Senna. And Michael said he hopes the stewards would understand the video pictures well enough to realise it wasn't his fault. Senna's response was, of course he's not going to say it's his own fault and Bruno felt Schumacher misjudged the difference in braking capability of the two cars as Schumacher was on new tyres and Senna was on worn rubber. Despite Schumacher's uh, plea, indirect plea to the stewards that uh, he was blamed for the crash, and this famously landed him with the grid penalty that cost him his pole position in Monaco. So Karun... How would you analyse this crash? Would you agree with the stewards that it was Michael's fault or was Bruno moving around too much approaching Turn 1?
2: No, I think I have to agree with the the stewards on this occasion. Uh, You know, I think it it, it almost seemed like Michael just misjudged how close they were to the corner. I think, uh, you know, in that last move when he, obviously Bruno went to the the middle, Michael went behind him, you know, from, from left to right and ran to the back of him. Uh, al- almost not realising that they were coming up with the braking zone Or maybe he, he didn't realise how early Bruno was going to brake uh, You know, clearly his immediate reaction on the radio I think was to call him an idiot or something like that uh, which, which, you know, became pretty evident pretty quickly That he, he didn't think he was at fault But, you know, the reality is when you watch it back uh, he, he was the car behind running into the back of the car in front
0: It was such a shame that this happened, really. It was one of a number of incidents Schumacher had in that second career. But that Monaco pole position that you said it cost him would have been such a great moment, wouldn't it? Although it would have not only put a different spin on Schumacher's return because he would have got that extra pole, but also he'd have, let's say, executed the race right, stayed in the lead at the start, stayed ahead through the pit stops he could have been leading when he retired from that race because I remember I remember asking Mercedes so is anything to suggest anything that happened in that race caused the uh, the failure that put him out of it and they said well no there's no reason to think it would have would have happened wouldn't have happened if he'd started at the front so that would have put a bit of a different spin on things as well as potentially maybe even the uh, the Williams pit fire wouldn't have have happened because Senna's car wouldn't have been back at that stage you you never know so it's funny how early in the race a uh a a relatively insignificant incident down the order can have such ramifications not just to that day but what happens um, a week or two later
1: yeah I'd never quite made the connection with the fire as well because I guess yeah if Bruno had finished the race he'd have been up in normal park firm over the rest of the cars wouldn't he so huge ramifications I was I was uh, in a grandstand at Casino Square when Schumacher got that pole position in Monaco and the place erupted like you know everyone's hanging off the balconies the whole grandstand was cheering and I looked down at my phone I had a message from you Ed saying remember he's got a grid penalty he's not on pole and it was very very deflating and uh yeah what a shame what a how differently even if he'd have retired that would have been a, a glorious failure um and a story we'd still remember now instead of the frustration of the lost pole position but that's where we'll leave things for Spain 2012 then. Thanks to Karoon and Ed for joining us for this trip into F1's V8 era. And if you enjoyed listening to this and would like more V8 episodes in the future, be sure to let us know. Get in touch with me at glenfreeman39 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag bringbackv10s or email bringbackv10s at the And make sure you submit your questions for our series finale too, which is only a few weeks away now. Before we get to that, we've got three more regular episodes for you and to take us back into the comforting arms of the V10 era next time we're heading to the 1999 San Marino Grand Prix that I mentioned earlier. Depending on your perspective, this race is either famous for Jacques Villeneuve qualifying fifth on the grid for BAR then failing to get off the line or you might remember it as the race where Mika Hakkinen crashed out of the lead, the first of two big errors he'd make that year on Ferrari's home turf.
0: Athletic